music in my headphones. That must mean that we are on the air, Gene, and I'm supposed to behave now. And <laughs> you're especially going to have to behave now that we're on the air. Yeah, because I'm the one who misbehaves here in the <laughs> studio, definitely. <laughs> yeah, no, it's usually me. And um, we get on the air and say things, and then we get home, and my wife helps me grow up a little bit after the program <laughs> is over. So here we are in another season of disclosure mm-hmm. and another season of marriage. How many? This would be our it's 27th true. season together. Ooh, I that know. That sounds right? like a lot when you say it that way. Yeah, we way. got married when you were two. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we did not get married when we were two. Uh, no, it was much later than that. You were 21? I was 22 when we got married. Oh, so now everybody knows how old you are. I guess so. I guess if they can do the math. Yeah, they can do the math. <laughs> and uh, my wife is 63 yeah. this uh, coming spring. Yeah. No, <laughs> I'm going to be at 63 faster than you are. Yes, you are. Yeah. You're a couple years ahead of me. Hey, listen, we got a lot to talk about today, but before we get into a topic, mm-hmm. a thrilling topic, tell me what's new up on the mountain. Oh, Discovery Mountain? Yeah, that would be the mountain. That's that's <laughs> okay. when I say the mountain, it's your mountain. Okay. It's Discovery Mountain. Discovery Mountain. Yeah, is that's that's the mountain Yeah, that's our now. radio drama for kids. And yes. and and men who have never grown up. We like the show too. <laughs> you know, Sean, we we have listeners of all ages that listen to Discovery Mountain. It's wonderful. So, um if our listeners of Disclosure haven't heard it yet, you can find it right on on vop.com, voiceofprophecy.com. And what What's new is we are working on production of season 12 Season right now. 12. Season 12. And a season is not by the year, as you know we often think of a season in television, but we do seasons by the Bible story. Okay, so the whole so, thing is based on Bible stories. It is. It's, right? it, they're so. Bible stories. Season 12 is the, bi- the Bible story is Nehemiah. Oh. And as we always do, uh, the Bible wait a minute, wait a story. Nehemiah? Nehemiah. I've been uh-huh. saying Nehemiah my whole life. Have you really? Yeah. Oh. Is it not pronounced Nehemiah? Uh, Hello, control well, room. How do you I guys don't say know. it? No, I always say Nehemiah. Nehemiah with a long, like Gene. Oh, well, Gene is right again. <laughs> I guess I will just, I think I'm going to submit my resignation. Yeah. I pronounce, but you've got to understand, I grew up in a community of Dutch immigrants and I pronounce almost every book of the Bible completely wrong. Yeah. The well, long one that starts with an H. How do you say that one? The long one that starts with yeah, an H. Yeah, H A B B. Habakkuk? Yeah, that's see, that's how the Dutch that's say it. That's how the Dutch say it. And, okay, and I'll Maybe bet you a lot of our neighbors say Habakkuk. Oh, they might. But we both grew up in Canada. But I we all know they speak. No, they speak Dutch. In, they speak Dutch in heaven. I know I'm right about these things. Mm-hmm. Right. So <laughs> I I I grew up around the divine language, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is Dutch. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine you get to heaven and the angels speak Dutch? Because Dutch sounds I'll like you're lost. choking on a chicken bone. <laughs> <laughs> It's like your angel is, hey, good uh, <laughs> morning. There won't be Dutch angels. Yeah, I hope there'll be Dutch angels. I, hope I will be the Dutch understand. angel. Now, that's bad theology. We don't turn into angels when we get to heaven. Right. No, we don't. But I could be a Dutch angel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants a Dutch guardian angel <laughs> because they're just blunt. The Dutch are blunt, right? We just tell people like your guardian angels show up and say, quit being dumb. Yeah, probably. Yeah, we're not tactful. Right. Okay, so you're in season 12 and it's Nehemiah. Well, uh, maybe we can look it up during the break, but that's how I always say it. <laughs> okay. um, season 12, Nehemiah, uh, of course, that's a wonderful story. Um, Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem and they mm-hmm. rebuild the wall. Yeah. And so we'll tell that Bible story in season 12. Great. And we also, 
as I always do, whatever's happening in the Bible story, we kind of parallel that in in the lives of the characters in Discovery Mountain. So oh, cool! It's it's it's. I'm looking forward to. A really and I have fun a major season. part this season, right? I have <laughs> a have major a part. part. I actually have lines. You do. Yeah, I play Chaplain Simon on Discovery Mountain, and he keeps getting shipped off to Afghanistan, and we all know why. <laughs> no. When somebody gets shipped off to Afghanistan eight times in a in a show, you know what's going to happen? They're going to kill the character no. off. I'm going to be gone. No, you're just not very available for production. So, but in season twelve, <laughs> see, you're not Dutch. We... The Dutch would tell the truth. They would say you're not good at this, Sean. In season twelve, <laughs> Chaplain Simon gets flown in to help rescue the situation. Oh, good. So, so it's a big part. Yeah, it's a okay, good part. Okay, good. That's it's exciting. Hey, look, we got to get into our Bible study, but I want to show you something fascinating I came across this summer while I was busy slaving here in the office and you were lying by the pool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. how summer goes. <laughs> summer went way too fast this past summer. Summer was busy. And if it you're listening busy. to a rerun, it was the summer of 2019. It came late. I think we mm-hmm. still had some snow in May. Mm-hmm, we did. And then fall came early. I feel well, ripped off. I don't know. No. I love fall, so fall can but come anytime. While we're being ripped off, I was reading about the horrors of World War II and the Nazi movement. Okay. And, um, and of course, that's a, that's a major watershed moment in history. Um, for those who are philosophy buffs, sort of the discovery of Auschwitz by the Allies at the end of the world war was kind of a uh, the moment when the nihilism of 19th century philosophers went mainstream or we just mm. gave up on humanity mm-hmm. we came into the 20th century full of optimism brimming with optimism if you go and read the hansard you know the written record of things that were said in the british parliament as we got into the 1890s they were standing up and saying ahaha you know industrialization and the scientific revolution we are going to solve mankind's problems we'll even put an end to war mm-hmm. that may have not even been the 1890s someone may have been saying that like on the eve of World War One, mm-hmm. Yeah, into the early 1900s. Absolutely. Yeah, was, with it's optimism. the age of optimism. Right. Mm-hmm. So we get into, um, into the camps at the end of the war, and we see that mankind has not solved any of their problems. Mm-hmm. And so while we developed, you know, the Industrial Revolution, we were mechanizing everything, what we really did was mechanize war and death to the tune of Uh, millions put to death in a systematic, industrialized fashion. Mm -hmm. And uh, the 20th century, with the mechanization of war and trench warfare and the machines we built and the system... uh, It's too early for my... Like <laughs> systematization there you go. of warfare led to 200 million people died in Whew. 203 all told. And mm. if I just get in one of my personal beefs, 100 million of those were due to Marxism, which was kind of a new pseudoscience mm-hmm. that took root in the 20th century and led to 100 million deaths. So we came out of the 20th century a lot less confident than we went in. And so nowadays, nobody trusts human judgment anyway. Yeah. Well, I suppose that in one way that loss of confidence was a good thing because it underlines what the psalmist was trying to warn us about many centuries ago, doesn't it? Um, I'm thinking of Psalm 146, verse 3. And that says, do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. Exactly. And that's the message you get all through the Bible, especially in the prophetic portions. Mm. The Bible is the story of human beings trying to build our own kingdoms and solve our own problems after we fell into 
sin. And then it's also the story of all the moral disasters we created in the wake of that, and we seem to have perfected moral disaster as we went into the 20th century. And what God is doing is kind of demonstrating over the course of history that we don't know what we're doing, and he's bringing us to this point where when we finally realize what we've done, he will wipe away the kingdoms of this earth and reestablish his own and Mm -hmm. solve the problems. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned you learned oh, yeah. something about what the Nazis Yeah, I got did. off Tell on a tangent. I got off on like three <laughs> tangents in that section. But okay, listen, we all know that the National Socialist ideology was fueled at least a little bit in part by the likes of Friedrich Nietzsche, who right. was advoca- advocating for the rise of the Ubermensch. You know, man is going to evolve to the next stage. We're going to become supermen. We also know that it was fueled somewhat by an attempt to recapture the pagan spirit that dominated Europe before before Christianity spread across Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got the nihilist influence, we've got uh, the pagan influence, but there was one more influence that was really big, an influence that sort of empowered the Nazis, and that was drugs. Really? Yeah. There was a huge drug problem among the Nazis. Apparently there was this doctor by the name of Theodore Morell, okay. and he was known for giving people what he called energy injections. Um, this is kind of like the Red Bull of the 1930s. He had okay. it in his needle, right? And so, as it turns out, Hitler suffered from severe gut pain. As a matter of fact, I, can we say this on the radio? He suffered from gas. Let's just leave it there. We'll okay. say that he suffered okay. from gas, and it was a bad, bad problem. Hmm. Um, so he gave him, he gave Hitler uh, probiotics, okay. basically, to help solve it. And he was so impressed, Hitler, that he made Theodore Morell his personal physician. But Morell had some other tricks up his sleeve. He was also injecting Hitler with methamphetamines, a drug known as pervitin. Hmm. Um, And that would allow Hitler to work into the night, right? It's methamphetamines. And he becomes dependent on that. So from that point on, he gives Hitler more and more and more and more drugs, uh, from high doses of caffeine to help him power through the night to cocaine for sore throats. He gave Hitler cocaine for his sore throat and even was dosing him with morphine. Hmm. And Hitler was so impressed with all these drugs that before you know it, Pervitin becomes mainstream in the German army. And they developed something called Panzer Schokolade. And that's basically... Chocolate? No, that means tank chocolate. Okay. And so the tank operators were given chocolate that was permeated with methamphetamines. It's it's tank chocolate. (laughs) So they were able to... The reason the Germans were able to keep fighting through the night is because they were high as a kite on meth. That's, you know, chocolate meth. Delicious chocolate meth. And so there you go. Drug abuse is nothing new. It was one of the things that helped spike the death toll in World War II. And very interesting. It's very interesting, right? Very interesting. Meth chocolates. I have to say that. I don't think you can still get meth chocolates or pervitin I, I, I tank chocolate. So. I, I don't think so. No, we could put in a call over to who are the big chocolate makers. Mm. I don't know. We have Hershey. Toblerone. Toblerone. Just Toblerone. Have, making meth can you chocolate. get meth Toblerone? Oh, dear. Yeah. So anyway, there you go. Okay. Drugs. Well, uh, <laughs> And, and, and drugs are not our topic today. So what is our topic today, Sean? Uh, no, no. Uh, what we are going to look at is a story that does happen in the wake of World War II, however. See the segue? Uh-huh. See that? That is what there a consummate go. professional in broadcasting can accomplish, <laughs> a segue into his topic. Okay. Um, where were we? Oh, I lost my place. Oh, yeah, World War, World II, War II, the big segue. And the thing that happened in the wake 
of World War II was the establishment of the nation of Israel in the 1940s. Because, mm -hmm. of course, when we saw the horror of what Hitler did to the Jews in the death camps, we decided, hey, maybe it's time to give the Jews a permanent homeland because they've been persecuted almost everywhere they've lived over the centuries. Russia drove them out. Spain drove them out. Uh, there's some speculation that Columbus may have been what we call a converso. He was a secretly, secretly Jewish and, um, and was professing Catholicism because his people had been under pressure to do that. And a lot of his crew, eager to go to the New World, were also fleeing Jews, fleeing from the Inquisition. But, so the Jews had been persecuted almost everywhere they went over the centuries. So there was this decision before the United Nations in 1947. And the decision is, are we going to divide up Palestine mm -hmm. into two distinct regions, one for the Jews and another one for the Arabs? Palestine had been under British control since 1917, uh, and now in 1947, 30 years later, the nations of the world are going to vote on whether or not the nation of Israel would become a reality. And what they need at the UN is a two-thirds vote. A two-thirds vote. Now, right. I'm, I'm guessing that the Arab nations would not be in favor of this. They no. probably voted no. No, that course. is absolutely right. Yeah. You know, of course they voted no. And mm -hmm. a lot of other Western nations, the, the sort of European nations and here in the New World, the mm -hmm. West, um, the countries either voted yes or they took the safe road and said, we abstain. We're not going to make a political statement here. The Arab nations, however, were furious. The vote went yes. Um, and the Arabs said, look, if it goes yes, we're going to persecute the Jews living in our countries. And in the grand total of those in their countries is about a million. I hear the music playing. I'm going to run. This is an important <laughs> story because it does lead to a study of Bible prophecy. So we're going to take a little break and we'll come back and look at what happens in the wake of the 1947 UN vote to establish the nation of Israel and what it means for you. So uh, hold your breath if you can through this whole commercial. and We'll be right back. As you may know, the Voice of Prophecy is supported by people just like you. We provide Christ-centered programs and Bible studies free of charge so that no one is left out. If you've been blessed by these programs and would like to pay it forward, we invite you to visit vop.com give to make your tax-deductible donation. We're equipping the world for Christ to come, and your support will make a direct impact on so many lives. That's vop.com give. Most of us have lost a loved one to death, and the question we wrestle with in our mind is what exactly happens when we die? Do we go to heaven or do we go to hell as some people believe? Find the Bible's answer to this question in our free Discover Bible Guides. You can get them at VOP.com, click on the tab that says study, or just call us at 888-456-7933. That's 888-456-7933. So I don't know if you were able to hold your breath for that entire commercial break. I have no idea why I challenged everybody to do that. Uh, but if you're turning a little blue, go ahead and breathe now. We are back on the air. And during the break, I looked up the pronunciation of the prophet Nehemiah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what did you discover? Well, Sean? I discovered that everybody on earth has it wrong. Oh, They're okay. all saying Nehemiah. But you see, they speak modern Hebrew, and I speak very ancient Hebrew. I have a pronunciation guide from the... 
<laughs> from the 5th century B.C. You're stretching your case there just a little bit. Yeah, I am. I am. Hey, before the break, we we're going to talk about the temple. Oh, actually, now I just gave my hand away. That's where we're headed, to the temple. Right. But, you know, if, if you already saw the title of the show, it's called The Temple in the Last Days, mm-hmm. part one, because I'm going to make an entire miniseries out of this. This is fascinating. Oh, it is fascinating. And let's, right. let's take our time exploring yeah. it. Yeah. So we'll never get done today, and that'll frustrate everybody. But I would urge you, before you write your letters, you know, everybody's got an opinion on this subject. Before you write your letters, listen to the whole series. Just hear it out and get your Bible and do a little study and see what you find. And then if you're really, you know, got a lot of complaints about the things I say on radio, address all of your complaints to Miss Jean at Box 999, (laughs) Loveland, Colorado, because you are my complaint department. Am I? Mm -hmm. Oh, officially. Full-time. good. Yeah. Good. And it is kind of a full-time job. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we were talking about the 1947 vote before the UN. Right. And the decision to split Palestine into two regions, the Mm -hmm. Jews and Arabs. And of course, everybody today is aware of how that decision went, Mm -hmm. because we are still living with the aftermath of that now that it is the year 2019, or if you're listening in reruns, it's the year 2020 or 2021 or 2087, because this show is so good, (laughs) you know they'll be listening to it in 2087, long after I've been planted. There you go. Yeah. All right. (laughs) So, all right, where were we? Okay, so the Arab nations are looking at this vote before the UN in 1947 and saying, look, if you guys go yes and take some of the land of Palestine away and give it to a Jewish nation, we are going to be angry and we will persecute the Jews living inside of our borders. And there were a lot of them. Mm -hmm. In 1947, there were something like 800,000 Jews living in Arab countries. And um, there were also another, oh, 200,000 or so living in Muslim-majority countries like Iran and Turkey, which are not Arabic nations, but still Muslim nations. Mm -hmm. So the vote, of course, goes yes. We are going to create this new state of Israel. And now you have riots all over the Arab world, particularly in cities like Aleppo, which is in the news all the time today for Mm -hmm. other reasons or related reasons, I suppose. And there had been a Jewish community in Aleppo dating all the way back to the time of King David. I mean, it had been there for centuries and centuries and centuries, millennia, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these long-established Jewish communities actually trying to distance themselves from what has come to be called the Zionist movement. We're going to establish a homeland for Israel. And they were distancing themselves because they were afraid of the backlash from their Arab neighbors. Uh, and still they bore the runt of Arab uh, Arab. Arab wrath. I'm struggling. It's like four o'clock in the morning when I'm recording. <laughs> I barely speak English. It's just why I pronounce it Nehemiah. <laughs> there you go. Good yeah. segue. No, but it still came unglued, and the Arabs really took out their anger on the Jews in cities like Aleppo, mm-hmm. although most of it was expressed in property damage, and very few people were actually hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a huge tragic loss at that point. The Aleppo Codex goes missing. It was an ancient manuscript that the Jews use as a reference point right. for how accurate their Bibles were. Um, yeah. And so a lot of tension right. emerges. Right. And, and, and as you mentioned, that 
that continues to this day in some form or another. Oh, yeah. No, mm -hmm. it's the, one of the hot spots on Earth. Of course it is, right? Mm -hmm. And what I want to look at today is not whether or not the state of Israel was the right thing to do. That's mm -hmm. sort of a political opinion, perhaps. What I want to spend time thinking about is this idea that kind of bubbled to the surface here in the West, in Western Christianity, and in you know the United States of America in particular. Mm -hmm. This idea that the birth of Israel would start us down the road to actually rebuilding the temple in the city of Jerusalem. Ah, yeah, right. 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 So, and that's still going. Now, this is an idea that was there before 1947, right? It dates back to the 1800s, the mid-1800s, really, the early to mid-1800s. But this idea really takes off when the nation of Israel is born, because many people took the birth of the Israeli state to mean that they were right about what we now call the dispensational view of Bible prophecy. They're dispensationalists, and they believe that the recapture of Israel would lead to the building of the temple, and it was confirming what they believed. Right. So mm -hmm. you might ask, what is the dispensational <laughs> view of prophecy? Yeah. Uh, explain you that ask. for us. Explain that for our listeners. No, you're supposed to ask. I said, I'm, you may ask. What is the yeah. dispensational <laughs> view of prophecy, See, after Sean? you've been on radio for years and years and years, you'll finally catch on what, it, you know, what, what you're supposed to do. Uh-huh. You're so much better at this than I am. <laughs> All right. The dispensational view of prophecy teaches that God is going to, in its most popular iteration today, it teaches that God is going to suddenly take all the Christians out of this world mysteriously. They're all going to vanish near the end of time, mm -hmm. and the Jews will be left behind, and they get seven more years to get things right. Now, this is an idea. You can go search in Christian history. I have. I've literally searched almost everything everybody's written in the last 2,000 years on Bible prophecy, and you will discover that this idea really does not exist before the 1830s, and that should raise a red flag. It also doesn't go mainstream in Christianity until you get into the 20th century. You know, I mean, to the point where everyday Christians are talking about this concept. And that makes me suspect the idea, because as you know, as they say, nothing true is new, mm -hmm. and nothing new is likely to be true. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's so, that's a, dispensationalism. a saying with with a lot of weight to it. Well, let's let's think about um, John Nelson Darby. Didn't this concept come from his mind? Because he insisted that Christians would spend eternity in heaven with Jesus, and that the Jewish people would inherit the earth. Yeah, yeah, it really did. And we, we're not going to spend much time on Darby himself. That'd be another show, perhaps. I mean, he's fascinating enough that it would probably warrant an entire you know, episode to talk mm -hmm. about him. But it does come from John Nelson Darby, really. That's sort of ground zero where it really takes root in, in Western Christianity. And it's problematic, this idea, because first of all, it was kind of born out of this anti-Semitic sentiment where Darby could not bear the thought of Jews and Christians being in the same place for all eternity. So he mm. wanted to separate them. So he puts not the good. Christians in heaven and the Jews inherit the earth, right? Yeah. Secondly, again, I just want to underline that this idea shows up in the 1830s. Right. Christians didn't think this way for the first 100, well, no, for the, 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 the first 18 centuries right. of Christian thought, right. right? So you can search for 18 centuries, you don't find this idea. Um, and, and that's because prior to Darby, we really thought about prophecy from an entirely different perspective. We approached it from what people would now call the historical school of, of prophecy, the historical mm -hmm. perspective, where we saw that Bible prophecy was being fulfilled over many centuries, over the entire course 
of human history um, through long stretches of time. So, for example, the prophecies of Daniel, you'll notice when you read them, that they start in Daniel's own day when he's living in either Babylon or in Persia. Mm -hmm. And then the prophecies flow down through the history of time down to some last day event like the second coming or the judgment. Same thing in Daniel 7. You know, it starts in his own day and stretches down through time to the second coming of Christ or the judgment. Mm -hmm. You get to the book of Revelation and you have the same thing. It's 600 years after Daniel, but it starts in the first century when John is on Patmos. These prophecies start in his day. Mm -hmm. um, and the book of Revelation says repeatedly, you know, the time is at hand. These will fulfill shortly. And they move down through history to the last day again, down to the judgment or the second coming of Christ. Now, we read that we read prophecy that way for 1,800 years as gradual fulfillment that involves every single generation of believers. Yeah. But what this dispensational point of view did was take most of the book of Revelation and condense it down into a few short years at the very end of time. And those years were reserved for the Jewish people. So what we have, in essence, is this new theory um, is a prophetic blindness to the rise of the Christian church, don't yeah, we? Yeah, that, that's exactly. That's probably a really good summary of it. Darby and others, like Cyrus Schofield, said that the Old Testament prophets couldn't see the New Testament era. They never, right. ever saw it. Mm -hmm. They didn't see the church. They didn't see anything that happened after the cross of Christ. Now, that doesn't make any sense. Not when you read what the Bible actually says, because we can all agree Daniel saw the rise of the Roman Empire. That's before the cross. But he also sees the fall of the Roman Empire, which right. is almost Later. five centuries after the, the fall of Christ. So we know that the prophets could see the Christian period of history. Darby said that the prophets couldn't see us and that prophecy stopped, the Old Testament prophecies, stopped when Jesus died on the cross. And then God takes the church out of the world. We're invisible in prophecy. And then prophecy restarts, and it's only for the Jewish people hmm. the minute the church disappears, and the Jews get seven more years. Mm -hmm. And so the whole New Testament, 2,000 years of history, is invisible to the prophets. Now, I know that we're opening a whole can of worms here because <laughs> yes. the idea that the church is missing for the last few years of Earth's history is also a brand new idea. It's only 200 years old, mm -hmm. and we don't have time to unpack that in this show. We <laughs> no. just don't. I mean, we could spend hours on that. And we, and we really just glossed over it yeah. here yeah. very briefly. But so. you do unpack it, Sean, and you do go into detail in, in a book you've just written called The Appearing. Yeah, it's a rewrite of the book because I think we've uncovered some more history, and uh, here we go. Shameless plug for the book. You know, preachers do that. So, yeah, you need to do yeah that. it's true. And The Appearing is the name of the book. Go to VOP.com and you can get a copy. And we unpack the history of what Christians have said about the Second Coming for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't want anybody to ever take my word for anything. What you ought to do is open your Bible and see what it says. And if I'm wrong, go with the Bible. You know, always reject preachers and what they say, particularly TV and radio preachers, reject what they say and stick with the Bible. But I'd urge you, I'd challenge you to pick up the book, go through it, and see what you find, and yeah. then come to your own conclusions out of the Bible. So 
Uh, yeah, the book is called The Appearing at VOP.com. But for today, for today, let's not talk so much about the disappearance of Christians at the second coming. What I want to do is actually zero in on the temple itself because okay. there's an awful lot of talk about that in Western Christianity. And the sure. reason I keep emphasizing Western Christianity is because if you go to other forms of Christianity, Orthodox or uh, Coptic or some of the other major branches of Christianity, you don't find this idea being taught. Why? Because it didn't exist in Christian history. So what we're going to do today, and we don't have time to, like we've burned half a show already, but <laughs> I want to zero okay. in on the temple itself, and we will never have time to finish this, but we're going to give it the old college try, even if we have to spend 80 shows on this, uh, because there are some important concepts in the subject of the temple that have almost been lost in Christian thinking. We not only have new ideas that we need to challenge with our Bibles, there are old ideas that we seem to have lost in the process, and they are central to understanding what happened at the cross. They are central to understanding um, what's going to happen in the future and what Christ does for believers today now that he's back in heaven standing at the right hand of God and, and, and so on. These are important concepts and the music is playing. So I'm not going to get any of my big important concepts done before <laughs> well, the commercial break. After the break, though, we yeah. have two more segments where we can really we'll dive into this. We will start. Yes. Yeah, and never get done because I brought in, look at this, I've got 21 pages of notes sitting in front of me and we are now <laughs> on page six. Uh, six. Page six. All right, time for a commercial break. And uh, don't try and hold your breath this time. Go and get a snack, get a pen and paper. It's almost time for us to really dig into Bible study. We'll be right back. Disclosure is just one of the programs brought to you by the Voice of Prophecy, like the audio adventure program, Discovery Mountain. Discovery Mountain is a weekly Bible-based program for kids of all ages and backgrounds. Your family will enjoy faith-building stories with Jake Donovan, <laughs> Mr. Simon, and others in this small mountain town. Each summer, campers visit Discovery Mountain, where they sing songs, learn about God, and reenact a Bible story with the help of drama teachers, Miss Wendy and Miss Tamara. With 24 full episodes every year and programming every week, your family will have something uplifting to listen to every week. Listen to episodes on demand and watch video features from Director Doug at discoverymountain.com or on your favorite podcast platform. That's discoverymountain.com. And there it is. We are back from the break in the back half of the show. And during the break, we were about to relaunch and go back on the air, and Harim made a mistake. Did you see that? He made a mistake, and I think it's a career-ending mistake. So don't go anywhere until we're done today. But when we're done today, pack up your office, Harim. Just, you know. Poor Harim. He gets fired every production. Yeah. <laughs> every production. And then you're rehired because then you can start out at a base salary. Oh, Sean. <laughs> That's how we keep your pay low, Harim. That's how we keep it low. All right. Uh, before, we're, we're, we're talking about the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. It's born in 1947 as a political entity after United Nations decision and how that has sort of prompted some thinking about Bible prophecy in Western Christianity and sort of seemed to confirm for some people that their dispensational view of prophecy probably is correct. 
And, um, and what I'm going to do today is just ask some questions about that, and I want to zero in on the temple in Jerusalem itself a little bit. And we'll only just get started in studying, but I want people to study. I wish that Christians would just get back to studying their Bibles. It, it's not Christianity to take preachers' words for things, mm-hmm. mine included. What I hope to accomplish here, we want people to study the Word and read the whole book and see what God says about the subject. Mm-hmm. And if you find that I'm wrong, you ought to reject it because we're fallible, and mm-hmm. I'm more fallible than you. Mm-hmm. No, maybe it's well, the other way around. That. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, you know, those are human opinions, but God doesn't stutter. He has a, a way of speaking very clearly if yes. you read the whole book. So okay. let's look at the temple itself. So where should we start now? Well, this is a good question, right, because it's so big. I want to start maybe with a passage I was reading in the book of Isaiah just a few weeks ago. Okay. I like to go down to the lake and sit by the lake in the wee hours of the morning, like 5 a.m., and and, uh, and study my Bible there. And I was in Isaiah, mm-hmm. and, um, and this passage doesn't really tackle the subject head-on, but it's got enough talking points that we can start to unpack it a little bit, use it as a reference point. Okay, excellent. I love the book of Isaiah. I know you do. <laughs> I've, I've spent some time recently in Chronicles and Kings, and of course Isaiah, which features prominently in the time in the century before the Babylonian captivity. Um, Of course, when the Assyrians were making life really difficult for most of their neighbors, that's sort of an understatement, and they ended up taking the northern tribes captive, and then they launched a siege against the city of Jerusalem itself. So that's an excellent place for us to begin our study of the temple. The temple figures prominently in those years. Yes. And it was the prophet Isaiah that Hezekiah goes to for advice when his city, Jerusalem, is being attacked by the armies of Sennacherib, the Mm -hmm. Assyrian king. Mm -hmm. So what we have in the opening chapters of Isaiah is this sort of catalog of sins that God's people are committing, Mm -hmm. and those sins caused vulnerability in the face of Assyrian aggression. They're rejecting God, and so God says, look, if you don't want me, I'll let you have what you want. You know, if you want to be like the nations around you, help yourself. Here come the Assyrians. And so you have these famous passages like this one. This is right at the top of the book, Isaiah 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Now listen to this. This is verse Mm 3. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Yeah. Now think about how tragic that is. Here we have these people that God has favored above every other nation on the planet, and they owe their prosperity and their protected status to the covenant that God established with Abraham. Right. So what was supposed to happen for Israel under that covenant is that God would take the plan of salvation to save the human race, and he would put it on display at the temple, mm-hmm. right, through mm-hmm. the temple rituals, the services, the, the the furniture, everything pointed to Christ and the plan of salvation. And the Gentile nations that live next door to Israel were supposed to see and understand who God is by looking at what happened in that temple. Mm-hmm. And the temple would eventually, in Isaiah's own words, Isaiah 56, would eventually become a house of prayer for all nations. Yeah. That's Isaiah 56, verse 7. One of my favorite passages. Yeah. There's there's a promise there. So in essence, that idea that God had chosen just one group of people as his people and rejected the rest of the planet, that's that's not a biblical concept at all. That's well, not yeah. what we're seeing here. Well, he, he did choose Israel. That part is true. But right. did he reject the rest of the planet? You mm-hmm. know, I'm only saving the... No, it's not true at all. Um, 
they were never chosen to the exclusion of everybody else on earth. That kind of thinking has generated some, frankly, really strange ideas in the last two centuries. The last two centuries have kind of been a disaster for Christian thought in a lot of ways because a lot of really odd ideas have made their way into Christianity. And one of them is this misplaced idea. This isn't very common, but it's out there. And there's this idea out there that the nations of Europe are actually the ten northern tribes of Israel who were taken by the Assyrians and resettled in other regions, and they eventually you know, migrated over the Caucasus Mountains and became the Caucasians hmm. and the tribes of Europe, and they're hmm. now the Europeans. And so the, the thought is that these are actually genetic Israelites. So the thinking goes, at least with some of the people in this movement, it's not a big movement, it's a little fringe, okay. um, but as you know, I'm fascinated by fringe movements. <laughs> um, the idea is you can't be among God's people unless you're a genetic descendant of Israel. Hmm. Now, not all of the people that subscribe to that say that, but I've run into them, well, you have to be a genetic descendant of the Israelites to be saved. So that's not the whole movement, but the idea is certainly out there. Okay. Um, but when you read Isaiah's book carefully, it underlines the fact that Israel was established as a light to the world. I love that language. So that everyone, regardless of genetic heritage, would find their way back to God's kingdom. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, if you look at this astonishing last day message that goes to the whole world in Revelation chapter 14, mm -hmm. that message goes out to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And the Greek word right. for nation is ethnos. It's where we get ethnicity. It's talking about all people groups are being invited into the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So this idea that Israel was exclusive isn't so. God uses people to reach the world. If he chooses you, it's for outreach. It's not because you're particularly special or more worthy than, than others. So in the opening verses of Isaiah, God is heartbroken. I mean, it breaks his heart. He chose these people. He's going to get his message to the world. And he's saying, as, is, as the book of Isaiah opens, that Israel has become so wayward. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've become so much like the Gentiles that their witness is gone. Mm -hmm. It's lost. There's no difference anymore. And as they grow more progressively rebellious and wicked, they actually lose sight of the reason that Israel was born in the first place. It's gone to them. And so God has this statement. Look, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. In other words, God is saying, wow, f farmyard animals have a better sense of who supports them than Israel does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that really continues. We see that in, in the prophets as they talk about the state of, of Israel before the captivity. Yeah. You see it continue. You know, <laughs> talking about the, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, some people say that animals are better than people. <laughs> in this yeah, case, the older I, I, I get, the more I, Yeah, the older I get, I'm wandering into that camp. It's you like, think so? Animals, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there is some truth to that. My, my brother had a dog growing up. You guys had a dog. Yeah, my, it was my brother's dog, too. Yeah, mm -hmm. when I met him, his name was... Um, Rue. Rue. Is yep. that short for something? Yeah, he, he had a longer... We were the second family that had him, and the first oh, family he got rejected. named him. He got rejected? I'm not sure what the situation was, but his full name was Aruma, and then uh, we yeah. called him Rue. Right. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing about dogs. I mean, you take a look at dogs. Cats, cats aren't in the equation. Cats somehow snuck onto the ark. They're not going to sure. be in heaven. But dogs, 
Uh, no, I is that a, a no, Joel? Joel's in the control room. Is that a no, cats won't be in heaven, or uh, you're evil, Sean? No, he agrees with me. Oh, he does? Yeah. Uh-oh. If you love cats, please write your letters of complaint to Gene Boonstra, Box 999, <laughs> Loveland, Colorado. But I like cats. All right. We have But th- let's think about dogs for a minute. No matter how naughty your dog might be, mm-hmm. choose the furniture, has a little accident on the carpet or a big one, barks in the middle of the night at the neighbor's, that dog still knows who master is. It still knows where the food and shelter are coming from, and they still give their masters unconditional love. Hmm. But with people, it's different. We theoretically, all of us say, yes, God created the world. We know that intellectually. God is the Lord of everything. But in our day-to-day lives, we essentially deny that with every decision we make that contradicts God's right to govern this universe. So we might say, Something like, oh, God wants me to treat my possessions like they belong to him. We would call that stewardship. Mm -hmm. And so what do we do? We throw a couple of bucks in the plate at church, right? Uh, But really, in our day-to-day life outside of church, the other six days of the week, we treat our possessions like they all belong to us. And our priorities always rise to the top of the agenda over what God's priorities are, if we even remember what God's priorities are. And, that, and that's what was happening in Israel in Isaiah's time. Yeah, it really was. So if I were to identify a beginning point for all of the problems, well, the beginning point would have to be Eden, wouldn't it? You know, when, when we the fell into sin and decided sure. we wanted to be self-sufficient. But if we're going to talk about the state of Israel and kingdoms and that kind of thing, I'd put ground zero at the coronation of Saul, the first king of Israel. If you read that story carefully in 1 Samuel 8, What you find is God telling the prophet Samuel that when they asked for a king because they wanted to be like the nations around them, like the Gentiles, Mm -hmm. God tells Samuel that Israel had just rejected his kingship, his rulership. And that leads to a long string of heartbreak over the years. And you get this description throughout 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. um, uh, uh, Where the kings of Israel are becoming more and more self-absorbed and wicked, yes. right up to the point where their self-interest um, excludes God from residing among them. Mm-hmm. Because the nation was only going through the motions as far as a relationship with God was concerned. They're paying lip service to Abraham's God, but really they're worshiping self. Mm-hmm. That shows up a couple of verses later, uh, still in Isaiah chapter 1. Here's verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. So these are all the sacrificial animals, and this is the system that God's talking to them about. So we have God saying that he'd rather they not go through the motions because their sacrifices have become completely meaningless. Yeah. What he's looking for is the intent of the heart, of course, a relationship, not just these rites that they've been going to through, these rituals that actually mean nothing outside of the relationship with God because that was the intent of the sacrificial system. Yeah, and the same thing can happen today, can't it? I mean, we we sometimes worship the symbols instead of the God behind the symbols. So, Definitely. I mean, what's the point of going to church and singing hymns and kneeling for prayer and throwing a couple of dollars in the collection plate if you're not actually interested in God? Mm-hmm. I mean, think about this, Gene. What if the kids sent you a Mother's Day card, mm-hmm. but you knew that behind it all, they kind of resented you and want nothing to do with you? What would be the good of that card? It would hurt 
more than it would help, wouldn't it? Yeah. It would yeah. be completely meaningless. It's a lie. Mm -hmm. It's just a painful reminder that you are not the object of your children's love. Mm -hmm. So what happens years after Isaiah is that God eventually, and here's the big point, God moves out of the temple and he leaves it empty. Mm -hmm. And that leads to this concept you find in Bible prophecy known as the abomination of desolation. Now the music is playing, and so I just, you know, I launch with a big idea. This is really important, understanding Very. the temple, the abomination of desolation. So we'll take a little break. We're in Isaiah chapter 1, using it as a springboard to discuss the temple and Bible prophecy. I think we're going to be at this for more than one episode because we're barely scratching the surface. What we're going to do is take a little break, go grab a Bible. You're going to wish you had it in a few minutes. And when we come back from this and the amazing offers from the Voice of Prophecy, um, we'll finish this study. Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Are you searching for answers to some of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides can help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or call us at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Retirement planning can be a stressful process, but it doesn't have to be. The friendly people at The Voice of Prophecy can walk you through the entire process and explain all of your options based on your specific needs. Whether you'd like to set up a trust for income or make a gift that will benefit your loved ones and change lives through The Voice of Prophecy, we're here to help. To learn more, call 1-800-348-5993. Well, that was a good little break, right? I had <laughs> time was. to stretch, do my Pilates up okay. on the desk. Okay. Yeah, I've never done Pilates. It's fun. What I did you, the first really the first time you saw Pilates? What did you think it said? I don't know. Pilots. Maybe pilots. Probably. It's pilots. Mm -hmm. Pilates. Like, no, that that sounds like somebody's trying to be highfalutin. It clearly says pilots. Pilots. What is Pilates, though? It's kind of like you stretch. It's stretching and, and um, building your core muscles. It's. Um, and you like this? What I love it. I love it. I love doing Pilates because it really it stretches everything and See, you you pronouncing it wrong. You though. build you build um, muscles just by yeah. doing resistance of Jean, you with your own body. Gene does Pilates. Uh -huh. Nehemiah would have done pilots. <laughs> <laughs> Nehemiah with an A. Nope. Yeah. We're talking about the temple in Bible prophecy, and I had intended to get much further, but I think this is worth slowing down and, and thinking about carefully. So we kicked off today talking about uh, the rebirth of the state of Israel in 1947 and how a lot of people with a dispensational view of prophecy, this rather new system of studying Bible prophecy that appeared in the 1830s, um, they got excited because, oh, this is going to lead to the rebuilding of the temple. So mm -hmm. we're going to take our time and study the temple in detail. This is such a huge topic that we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on it. Uh, I want to be careful. So we may not get through all the material I hope to get through today, but that's okay. I think you want to follow along and tune in once in a while and see where we are with this. So we talked about the fact that Israel wanted to be like the nations around them, and in that sense... 
they stopped being a light to the nations around mm-hmm. them. The mm-hmm. temple was meant to put on display the plan of salvation. It was to show how God was going to plan to redeem the world and reconcile sinners to himself. Um, and so Isaiah wrote, I can't remember the text now, I think Isaiah 56, that the temple would be a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. Mm-hmm. And um, what Israel does when they ask for a king back in 1 Samuel 8 is that they're basically saying, we want to be like the nations, not a light to the nations. And then we get all these wicked kings that come in the wake. And now what had intended to be God's number one asset for sharing the gospel for the world becomes a number one asset for human selfishness. And the mm-hmm. kings become more and more and more wicked. So that years after Isaiah is writing, um, God eventually says, look, if you want to be like the nations around you, I'm not going to force you into my kingdom. I'm not going to force you to love me. That's not who I am. Real love doesn't force people. Mm -hmm. So God says, fine, I'll let you have what you're asking for. And he literally moves out of the temple. And he literally, I mean, he literally moves out of the temple because his presence was there. Mm -hmm. If you remember in the wilderness, as they were traveling, they would set up the tabernacle and there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that followed them. Paul says, incidentally, in his letters to the Corinthians, that that pillar, that presence was actually Christ, the pre-birth, pre-incarnate Christ. And so that would come down into the most holy place of the temple and take up residence above the Ark of the Covenant. And God said to Moses, and I think is in Exodus 25, I'm going by memory, I will commune with you from between the cherubim. There was literally the presence of God among the Israelites. But then God leaves. Look, if you don't want me, uh, what's the point of this temple? You're just going through the motions. I'm going to leave. And that is where we get this concept in Bible prophecy of the... Abomination of desolation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, I want everybody to think about this because this is a big idea. We talk about the abomination of desolation when we talk about Bible prophecy. Go to a Christian bookstore. You can buy a thousand books on prophecy, and they'll mention at some point the abomination or the abomination of desolation. But the way we talk about it now, it's like it's this outside force, right? Like some dictator who's going to show up and make life hard for Christians. But in its original formula, the abomination of desolation is not an outside force. It's not the Assyrians. It's not the Babylonians. They are agents of the desolation. Mm -hmm. But that's not what God calls the abomination of desolation. The sins of God's own people led to God leaving the temple. That's the abomination of desolation. God is desolating the temple. The reason the temple is desolated is because of our own abominations. And that's actually the ending of the original Old Testament. Right. And you might ask, what do you mean, Sean, by the original (laughs) Old Testament? What do you mean, Sean, by the original (laughs) Old Testament? (laughs) We've changed the order of the Old Testament books. Yeah, we have. Yeah, we have. Right. Um, The way that... Go ahead. Yeah, well, the, the the way we have them in our Bible is not not the ending ending. No, it's there's nothing wrong with the way that we've got them. We've kind right. of reordered them for the Western mind. But if you go and buy a Jewish Old Testament or a Jewish Bible, let's say, there is no Old New Testament there, but right. a Jewish Bible, mm-hmm. you'll find they're ordered differently. They actually make more sense the way that they're ordered there. Mm-hmm. And the book of Second Chronicles is the last book of the Bible. And what you have in the final chapters of Second Chronicles is this list of wicked kings and their abominations. It actually uses that word, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim. And then it tells us at the end of that book, God uses Nebuchadnezzar to come and destroy the temple, leave it desolate because 
of the abominations of God's own people. Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon, of course. Yeah. And in various places, like I'm thinking of Jeremiah 25, um, through the book of Daniel, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. Yeah. So what we have is God's Mind-blowing people. if you stop and think about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we have is God's people abandoning their post and God using Gentiles— essentially outsiders, to accomplish his purposes. Yeah, it's ironic, right? They're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, and in the end, the Gentiles are kind of unwittingly being used to bring light back to God's people. It's a strange twist of fate. The abomination of desolation refers to the temple, and the problem originates inside the camp, Mm -hmm. and then God uses outside forces to correct that. So... Um, then we get a, another abomination of desolation in the in, in, in the pages of the Bible, this one in the New Testament. Right. The same thing happens again when God uses the Roman Empire to destroy the temple in A.D. 70. Now take a look, Gene, at Matthew 23, and notice how Jesus describes the problem that leads to the Romans coming. Read mm-hmm. that for me. Mm-hmm. It's verses 37 and 38, Matthew 23. Okay. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. There it is. There's the actual word, Mm -hmm. desolate. This is the desolation. And what caused the desolation? It was God's own people. They Mm -hmm. killed the prophets. Mm -hmm. They stoned those who were sent to her. Right. But, Sean, most popular books on prophecy today describe the abomination of desolation as maybe a foreign dictator who moves in to rebuild the temple, one who rises to world prominence as a global dictator. Um, I've read that more than once. And they more or less describe this as an outside problem. Yeah, they do. And, you know, and that's probably a broad tendency among God's people anyway. I mean, let's pause here for a minute and think about this in terms of what it means for you and me and what we can learn from this. Um, We are forever finding the problems in our lives in other people. Mm -hmm. Well, it's easier than taking personal responsibility. Well, yeah, it's it's far easier. So Mm -hmm. people use the Bible today as a magnifying glass to inspect other people, right? And for forever complaining, so-and-so is doing this, and that's not very Christian, and -and so-and-so is doing that, and it's not very... I've had people say that. You know, I've had church members back in the years when I was pastoring churches come to me and say, oh, that bunch of people over there, they're not real Christians. Well, why do you say that? Well, they don't do this, and it says in the Bible you should do that. Ah, You know, unless God has tapped you on the shoulder and said, you are my prophet and I will put my words in your mouth, you probably shouldn't use the Bible that way ever. Yeah, that's very true. Because the Bible is meant for you to read. It is written to believers, Mm -hmm. and uh, there's plenty for you to work on if you open the Bible and use it like a mirror. Mm -hmm. And that's a humility—it's so much easier. It's it's a chicken. It's a cop-out to go after other people with the Bible because the brave thing, the courageous thing, is to open it and look at yourself. So— This trend where we say, oh, the problem is outside of the church, that's easier than dealing with the truth of what the Bible teaches. Mm -hmm. The truth of what the Bible teaches is that the problem originated inside the camp in the Old Testament, and just in case we want to say, oh, the Jews were wrong and, and the church is an improvement, nope, nope, nope. 
We've got lots. We could do shows on this. The New Testament is written to believers. Paul, in particular, read his lessons. He's identifying the same thing. The big problem is inside the camp of God's own people. So this is one of the red flags I get in my head when I read these modern books on Bible prophecy. You know, they say, oh, it's an outsider who comes after Christians, and the Christians are pure, and they never— Well, no, we've got this consistent story all through the pages of the Bible of what this term, abomination of desolation, really means. Mm -hmm. And you find it very early in the story. So, for example, in the days of priest Eli, that was Mm. one of our kids' favorite stories. Remember that? (laughs) I do. Samuel woke up in the night and heard a voice. Remember that? Samuel. Yeah. (laughs) Samuel, Samuel. And uh, Natalie, when she was like two, I know this is a little bit of a distraction. When she was like two, she knew that story by heart, right? Yeah, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. (laughs) Yeah, okay. So priest Eli, notice what happens there. They take the Ark of the Covenant to battle against the Philistines, and they're doing it presumptuously, and the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. That's the symbol of God's throne and presence among his people. What happens in that story? The temple, or the tabernacle in that case, is left desolate because of the sins of God's own people. Mm-hmm. We saw today the Babylonian captivity was the result not of Nebuchadnezzar's wickedness. He's wicked, all right, but he's called a servant of God, an agent of God to set the record straight because of the sins of God's own people. And then in AD 70, the Romans come and sack the temple in Jerusalem, again because God's own people ignored the prophets. Those are the words of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 23. Mm -hmm. Here's the Bible picture. Here it is. And this is a huge foundation for understanding the temple and its role in the last days. This is a big, maybe this will be our sort of big point for today, and we'll pick this up again when we get together next. Are you available for another show sometime? Sure. Are you available for dinner when we're done tonight? (laughs) Are you? Is that a promise? I don't know. I'm hitting on you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll I've been hitting on you, you for like better than 30 years. Yeah, and I don't think I've turned you down for dinner yet. So you have a good, yeah, you did. good winning streak. You did. Remember the sandwich shop when we were first dating that you didn't like? Oh, brother. Remember that? Yes. Yes. I don't want to eat here. So that's not entirely true. <laughs> you're open for dinner, but you're not open for dinner just anywhere. Okay. Here's the big point because we're minutes away from them playing the music and turning off my microphone. Mm-hmm. The big problem in the Bible is in interior. It's inside. It's God's own people. The picture the Bible gives is that you and I forsake the covenant that God made with his people. He made a covenant with Noah and with Adam and with Abraham, and we essentially abandon that. And so what God says in return is, look, I'm a God of love. Love is not coercive. I'm not going to force you into my kingdom. If you don't want me, I'm not going to force this thing. And God actually, because we reject him, packs up and leaves. Mm -hmm. He packs up and leaves. And so this idea that it's an outside force that is the big problem in Bible prophecy is not consistent with the themes of Bible prophecy all through the scriptures. The last generation of sinners is not special or unique. We are not different than those who went before us. One of the reasons that you see you know, two-thirds of the book of Revelation is written in the language of the Old Testament, is God is trying to underline that the problem with human beings is the same today that it always has been. It's God's own people forsaking his covenant. And so the sins are interior. So we got to remember that, that when the Bible talks about the abomination of desolation in the temple, here's the big takeaway, where we should be looking and beginning our investigation is not with others, but with our own sins. And that's going to set the stage for deeper study because I see the clock running out because you, you, you again, you filled up the time with all your talking. <laughs> yes. Now, I filled up the time with all my talking. So this would be part one. 
of the temple and the last days. This is a big subject. We'll spend a little time at it and uh, come back on another day and finish this study up. In the meantime, I'd encourage you to go to the Voice of Prophecy. It's not the Voice of Prophecy.com. I think it's just Voice of Prophecy. Voice of Prophecy.com and look for. Discovery Mountain Season 12, coming to a radio near you very mm-hmm. soon, where Chaplain Simon is clearly the best character Absolutely. in the whole thing. Children love Chaplain Simon. <laughs> they do. All right. Until next time, I am Sean and... I'm Jean. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Look at you pick that up like a pro. We'll be back next time. <laughs>